Well, good morning. Let's open together to Luke chapter 14. Luke 14, we'll be spending our time in this part of Scripture, Luke 14, and uh, we'll go a couple other places, but not too far uh, from Luke 14. That'll be our focus uh, for the morning. Thank you for joining us, for those who are here uh, at the building and for those who are joining us online. Uh, we're glad that we can have this time and appreciate you making the choice to uh, worship God with us and think about spiritual things. I was just thinking as, uh, as we were taking the Lord's Supper together how amazing it is that uh, here we are a couple thousand years downwind of some incredible events that really we believe all of history turned on one weekend. It was a Friday where innocent man was crucified, although I'm certain I know a lot of people were crucified by the Romans, and I'm certain that some of them were innocent. Uh, so that's notable, but it doesn't seem like it should radically alter our lives. But then that first day of the week, that Sunday, uh, the tomb was found empty. That man that was crucified didn't stay dead. And that's the reason we're here on the first day of the week, because we remember and we know that that, that's a radical thing. That is something that will change not only history, but change our lives too, and uh, give us hope for life after death. So it is notable to me, it's important to me for us to remember uh, that what we're doing today just continues a long tradition that goes all the way back to that weekend so many years ago. So I appreciate so much the, uh, the fact that we can gather and that we can share in these things for a few minutes this morning in memory of Jesus. Luke chapter 14, I want to read beginning in verse 25. He says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Do you ever read the fine print? You see an advertisement on TV and at the bottom of the screen, there's just all this fine print, almost so small that you can't read it. There are lengthy paragraphs. Sometimes they'll talk really fast at the end of the commercial to try to get everything in. Uh, such and such sold separately. You know, these are the terms of the lease. This is the interest rate. So there, there's the big print where everything looks really good, and then there's the fine print. Maybe it's the side effects of the drug, you know, that they talk about really quickly so that you don't think about the side effects as much as what the drug is supposed to do. So the fine print is the actual terms. You know, there is the, the large print that is the deal that makes everybody excited but the fine print says this is the actual features of the product. And, and you know, we kind of have to say it legally. We've got to get that in there so that you know what the actual terms are. But it just screams. And I think it's kind of funny that in our economy and our society, we just are used to this. That it screams there's more to this than meets the eye. You know, you, you can see this deal, but we all know there's more to that than just what it sounds like. We need to know the actual terms before we actually make the transaction. And we come to expect that because what the, the seller is thinking is that full disclosure, if we just laid it all out there in big print, then there would be a less likelihood of us making a deal. Fewer people would accept the offer. The offer. But the truth is, if they were to choose full disclosure, they may limit the number of sales, but there would also be this effect that the people who did go through with the purchase would be a lot less likely to complain they got a raw deal because they would know exactly what the terms were before they made the deal. So 
I've taken this little excursion because I think our contemporary business behavior helps us to see just how radically transparent Jesus is. Jesus makes the fine print big, and he does it here in Luke 14, so that everybody knows when he invites people to be his disciples, he wants there to be no possibility that people misunderstand exactly what's required of them and exactly what the costs are. And then he says, when you know all the terms, here they are laid out, now you need to make an informed decision. Are you willing to come and be my disciple or not? So I want to talk for a few minutes this morning about the fine print of being a Christian. And I just want to say, what does Jesus call us to and expect of us? And I want us to look at this text for a few minutes and see what the terms are and then challenge us to make a decision and to think about how that should change us. So in context here, in this section of Luke, we're on the road to Jerusalem. Jesus has decreed, I'm going to Jerusalem to be killed. And so along the way, there are different scenes that come up that Luke records for us. In this chapter, in Luke 14, there is an absolutely epic meal. Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house on the Sabbath. He gets there. There's a man with dropsy. He heals him. Of course, there's the general hubbub that always comes when Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath. Then he goes to sit down to eat, and he says, notices how everybody is jockeying for the best seats, and he says, don't sit in the highest place, sit in the lowest place. He tells his host, you shouldn't invite people who are going to invite you back. You should invite people who can't repay you. And then he tells another parable about the banquet, the kingdom of God, and how people are invited, and some make excuses. I mean, this is just an epic meal with all kinds of teaching and conflict and everything. And so when we finally get out of that meal, verse 25 is where the the break is. It's not really clear if we're just after the meal or if we're in a totally different scene. What is clear is that there is a great following. Verse 25, now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them. So if, if this were us, I think we would expect for there to be a great crowd around us. This is the moment for Jesus to pull out his greatest hits. Let's give an awesome sermon and then we'll really blow up and everybody will be super excited. And I'm just intrigued by the fact that Jesus does not seem to bring out his best material. Instead, what he does is kind of a downer. In verse 26, he just jumps out with, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What he does there is make the fine print big. So that when the people start to follow me, he says, now, wait a minute, let's everybody be sure you know what you're getting into. If you want to follow me, here's what it's going to cost you. So let's talk about this. First of all, he says, hate your family. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me, notice that, wanting to be a disciple, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You notice how thorough he is. Going through, it seems like, every relationship that we're close to. All the people that we love, he says, you need to hate. He says, I won't have any followers who don't hate their families. None. You can't be my disciple unless you hate your family. So Jesus has come on a mission from God. He's come to save people and to bless people and to heal people. And he is concerned about family allegiances impeding that work. And I want to remind you, Jesus is not shooting in the dark here. He has dealt with this already. So leave your finger or your marker here in Luke 14. Let's go over to Luke 9. He's already seen people have this trouble, and he is challenging them, don't let this happen to you. 
Luke chapter 9 and verse 59, very end of the chapter. Luke 9, 59, it says, To another he said, follow me. I want you to notice that follow me is both literal, you know, come along in my entourage, but it's also a disciple idea. Follow me, be my disciple. But he said, verse 59, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So here are the statements of the men he's inviting. Let me first go bury my father. Let me first say farewell to those in my home. These are people who should be ready to be disciples. They should be on the front row and Jesus invites them. But instead, they are not ready because they have family commitments that are coming first for them. So the problem here is not that they love their families. The problem here is they love their families too much. Their families have priority over Jesus. And you can tell it's about priority because in both verse 60, uh, no, verse 59, let me first go. And then in verse 61, let me first say farewell. When you see the word first there, it's a priority word. I'm going to do this now. Maybe I'll get around to being a disciple later. So these are men who can't even start being disciples until they tend to their family commitments. So what's going to happen if after they start, a family commitment arises? You see, the pattern here is whenever there's a conflict, I'm going to go take care of my family, and Jesus will come later. They will always just abandon Jesus to take care of their families, and that's not good enough. Jesus says, you can't be my disciple if I don't come first. If your family is first, it's not going to work. Let's go back to Luke 14. So in Luke 14 and verse 26, he says, if anyone comes to me and, so he wants to be a disciple, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. So if anyone comes to me and then, it's about our attitude regarding our family. We want to come to Jesus. How do we view our family? Hate here obviously has to do with allegiance. I think we can see that. It's not just about an emotion. And Jesus is obviously not saying that we should literally hate our family because we're told to love our wives and to love our children in other places in Scripture. That's not what Jesus wants. Jesus is also not creating a false dilemma that he's saying it's me or your family. Jesus is saying it's me, then your family. That's the point. It's me, then your family. This is about the way we view our family. We tend to give our family our primary allegiance and our primary identity, and Jesus says, I want that. I want to be primary. So if we're all about pleasing our family and keeping them happy, then we're not really ready to be a disciple of Jesus. There has to be something deeper than family commitments. So Jesus says the quiet part loud. Jesus makes the fine print big. And I want to take just a minute to process that. When you think about why would he say this? It is not, as I said, because he wants us to hate the people we love. Why would he say this? Jesus is alerting us to the fact that our family can be a threat to him, to our commitment to doing what's right and to following Jesus. It is a threat to our discipleship. I think we all know that our families can influence us perhaps more than any other relationship. We are closer to these people than anyone else. Our family helps define who we are. 
It helps us to understand our world and our experiences. We have an identity. There is a how we do things and how we live and how we think. There is a tremendous pull with our family. And Jesus is saying, that pull has to come second. It cannot be above me. So, if my family resists or rejects the changes I make to please Jesus, which one am I going to choose? Jesus or my family? If my family opposes my faith, which one do I choose? If my family tries to convince me to do things that Jesus says I shouldn't do, which one should I choose? If my family tempts me to soften the requirements Jesus makes because I want my family to be okay, I want them to be exempt maybe from some rule, which one will I choose? It may be that my family matters too much to me. And we need to be able to say that as disciples. I do not mean when I say that, that our families are unimportant. I believe in family and I try to be a good man in my family because I believe that's what Jesus calls me to do. But there is a limit to the priority my family can have in my life. And Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, that's got to be on the table. We can't say that that's not an issue when it so clearly can be. So he makes the fine print big and says, hate your family. Then he says, bear your cross. There's a little more than family, by the way, in verse 26, because at the end of verse 26, he says, and yes, hate even his own life. So this is about people that matter too much to us. And one of those people can be ourselves. We can matter so much to ourselves and our lives can matter so much that we're willing to compromise things for our lives. Verse 27 then says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So we, if we want to be Jesus' disciple, we have to bear our own cross and come after him. I mentioned in the beginning when we talked about kind of the context here that Jesus has said a bunch of times how he's on his way to Jerusalem to die. And when he says, be my disciple or sometimes follow me, he invites them to come to the disciples around him. Come with me to Jerusalem, but not just to watch me die. You come to Jerusalem to die with me. You take up your cross and follow me. Let's go back to Luke 9 for just a second. In Luke 9 and verse 21, I want you to see what I mean when I say that as he connects this idea of carrying a cross to his own death. Luke 9, 21, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, the idea that he's the Christ, saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, notice that language, be a disciple, follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So Jesus does not say there in verse 23, let him deny himself and take up my cross. That is not the idea. He says you will take up his own cross. Each one of us has our own cross and we take it up daily in verse 23. Now, taking up the cross emphasizes the initial step where we say, okay, I'm ready, I'm willing and here, it's clear what he means when he says, you take up your cross, you're willing to sacrifice your life. He says in verse 24 here, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So that's what Jesus did. Jesus gave up his life. And now he's saying, you come give up your life with me. 
Taking up the cross is not hard because the cross is heavy. Taking up the cross is hard because it means you're going to die. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to die. You come die with me. You take up your cross and be ready to die. Let's go to chapter 14 again, back in Luke 14. So in Luke 9, he talks about taking up the cross, but that's not what he says here. In Luke 14 and 27, Luke 14, 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It's bearing, which to me specifies regular, continual walking underneath the burden of that commitment that could cost you everything. Carrying the cross, bearing it, means more regular commitment to what Jesus has called us to. So I want to stress that bearing a cross means being prepared to suffer, to suffer hardship, to suffer persecution, and yes, to suffer death because of what we have come to believe about Jesus. I want to emphasize that while all these people are sitting around him, this great crowd, and they're wondering, is he the Messiah? Is this the one? Give us some teaching. Jesus looks them squarely in the eye and says, are you ready to die for this? That's the question. If not, don't bother applying. You can't be my disciple. Now, when Jesus talks about hating our lives, bearing our cross, being prepared to die. He does not mean that we should be reckless, throw our lives away. We see people in the New Testament, people like Paul, who carefully is trying to preserve his life. You know, he knows there's an assassination attempt coming. And so he tries to get out of that situation. He appeals to Caesar. New Testament Christians prayed for sick people to get better. This is not that we don't care about life. He's not talking about throwing caution to the wind. He is saying that there are going to be situations where people are threatening us because of our connection to Jesus, threatening us in persecution ways and threatening us even our lives. And from the beginning, from the moment we pledge ourselves to Jesus, he is saying you need to be ready to live under the constant possibility that you may be threatened and suffer and even die for your faith, that every relationship you take that cross into Every place of business you walk into, every home you're a part of, every battle with temptation, you carry this cross that I am ready to give it all up whenever because that's the commitment I've made. I am ready to sacrifice everything for Jesus. Bear your cross. He makes the fine print big. This is what's going to cost you. There's been a great tragedy that has happened over the centuries where initially, and you can see this in the New Testament era, uh, initially everybody understands this principle, that there is a cost to following Jesus. And usually that cost is paid out in persecution and suffering, getting run out of town, having to move your family at a moment's notice and uproot everybody because there's government persecution. Sometimes it's being tortured, stoned. But everybody knows that's the constant threat that Christians live under. And nobody really goes into that blindly in the first century. Paul says to Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But when you move forward in history, you see a shift. I think particularly a lot of people put that shift on Constantine Christianizing the empire in 325 or so. And as Christianity becomes more accepted, it becomes cool becomes what everybody is. 
it is in fashion. And because of that, there's very little social cost to be a Christian. There's very little commitment required. And you get the beginnings of nominal Christianity or cosmetic Christianity. You know, Christianity suddenly is not about something that costs you. It's just something you are. You assent to it. You think certain things, and I believe things. Instead of it being something I'm willing to sacrifice my life because these things are true. When everybody agrees with you and there is no cost, it's very hard to think about and talk about bearing a cross. And then there came a bunch of people who spent all their time and what they believed being a Christian or a disciple was, was reading and talking about certain principles of the Christian faith. You know, let's make theology. And so that's what it is to be a Christian. It's to get all your P's and Q's right in theology and doctrine. And as long as you can talk it out and reason it out and work it out and write it out, that's what it is to be a Christian with very little idea of there being a cost or actually living out what's written here, just following Jesus. And somewhere along all that way, between those who are just nominally Christians and those who are just intellectually Christians, this message that we need to be willing to give our lives for Jesus like he gave his life for us was lost. And we have to remember that If we are going to be disciples of Jesus, it will cost us. And Jesus does not say, let's hide that. He says, here it is. Big print, front page. Are you ready to die for this? I think that sounds radical in our culture. Because we don't really face that situation very often. That's a blessing because of the culture that we live in. But there is also something lost. Because it means we have the tendency to believe there's very little cost involved at all in being a disciple of Jesus. Jesus strongly disagrees. Bear your cross. Be ready to suffer. Be ready to be deprived. Be ready to die. The other thing, we're going to jump down to verse 33 now, uh, is Jesus tells us to renounce all that you have. We're going to talk about these verses in between uh, after we're done with this point. Verse 33 He says, so therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So this is more of the fine print. That word that is translated all that he has in my version means our goods, our worldly wealth. And he uses the same structure that he did back in 26 and 27. If you want to follow after me or want to be my disciple, but you don't do this, you have to do this or else you can't be my disciple. So what does Jesus mean by the idea of renouncing all that he has? Now, as in the other two conditions, he's aiming right for our hearts. Our hearts are in our family, and our hearts are in our sense of comfort and peace in our lives. And just like our family, just like our comfort, we tend to make an idol out of our possessions. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that we're willing to do evil to get possessions, to get money. And we also will keep our things from others and be reluctant to give them up because we believe that they are ours. There were people in Jesus' day who literally refused to do that. You remember the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and he's got everything lined out. He's saying, what am I missing? And Jesus says, sell all that you have and give, give to the poor and come follow me. And the man went away sorrowful because he didn't want to do it. Renounce all that you have. Some people were literally 
unable to follow Jesus because they literally would not renounce their possessions. But as the gospel goes forward, renouncing possessions seems to take a different kind of uh, approach. It seems to be less about giving everything away as you go through the New Testament. You see people who are wealthy, and it becomes more about having a constant readiness and willingness to give it all away. Now, sometimes that was literal where people, in, for example, in the Jerusalem church, sold their possessions and lands and gave it to the apostles so that they could distribute it among the needy in the Jerusalem church. But there is also this sense of just being generally need-ready. There is this sense of being stewards of what we have and willing to do what God expects us to do with our money based on the needs that we encounter. But what that means then, when you take this verse and apply it moving forward, is that Christians have renounced their claim on their money. It is not ours. It is Jesus's. We put it in his hands. And that is the way money is treated in the early church. So that when a need arises in another place, there are Christians, for example, in Jerusalem who are suffering, and the Christians in Antioch say, let's send some money. Let's help them. That is not just about church stuff and what the churches can and can't do. That is a message that says, my stuff is not mine. If they need it, it's theirs. And so because I've renounced my claim on my possessions, I'm willing to give. This is especially powerful to me because we have to realize that money is usually the vehicle by which we express our will. Money is what gets us what we want. It takes us where we want to go. It helps us do what we want. Money is the way we express our will. And to renounce it then is to renounce the freedom to choose the way we want to live. That is powerful. I no longer get to decide everything that I do. I get to do everything that I want. That's what Jesus is aiming at, that freedom that money provides us. He is saying, let it go. That must come second to my will. And very often, let's never lose sight of this, he warns us that money and our view of money can get in the way of our service to him. He is the one who says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. I wonder, in some ways it seems to me like it might be easier and even more successful for Jesus if he just said, you know what, if you want to be a Christian, it's just going to cost you. You know, a hundred denarii. Everybody pay up. And and I think people would, not only would they say, okay, that's it? hundred denarii, okay, well, that's a lot, but once I pay, I'm in then this idea of an ongoing renunciation, it's all on the table from now on, it's mine. People would probably be more willing to pay and more willing to accept it, but Jesus says, no, my expectation is ongoing. Renounce all that you have. So when you've got that fine print that's made big, and Jesus is saying, okay, you want to be a disciple, that's great. Here's the, here are the terms. Hate your family, bear your cross, renounce all you have. Then Jesus says, now let's, let's talk about what you do now. Let's talk about counting the cost. I bet there are people in his audience who are wondering, well, this is strange. I, I don't know if I want to follow you now. Verse 28. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it, Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So 
When he says which of you, it causes them to think about their own planning. Just like us, people in Jesus' audience had to deal with these kind of situations all the time. Money and business and planning, they had to decide what they were going to do with their stuff. And if we have a building project, which is what he talks about here, we're going to check carefully how much money we have now, how much everything's going to cost. Do we have enough to bring it all the way through? And we're going to count that cost before we start. We don't count it in the middle. We don't just cross our fingers and hope for the best. We sit down and count it. And I love the fact in verse uh, 28, he says, which of you does not first sit down and count the cost? You know, there are some decisions you can't make standing up. You got to sit down and think about it. There are some things that require deep thought and careful planning. This is one of those decisions. Am I really ready to go all the way through with it? And when we overextend ourselves, like he talks about here, when we say, yeah, I want that, but later on we find we're not really willing to pay, he says there's shame in that. Everybody begins to mock him and say, oh, he started, but he couldn't finish what he started. Verse 31, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not first sit down and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So this is probably a less relatable example. I doubt he had any kings in his audience, but we still get the principle. The principle is if we have our army and we see an army that's, we're outnumbered twice over, yeah, we're probably not going to try the battle. You know, let's, hey, let's make some peace. Let's do something different. We do some calculating. And you know Jesus' point. His point is we exercise careful judgment in matters of great importance. You don't, if you're going to make a big purchase, like uh, you want to buy a house, okay, well, you're going to sit down. You're going to count the cost. Am I going to be able to make the monthly payments? Can I make the down payment? What about all the closing costs? What about, you know, is the house ready for us to live in? We're We're going to be careful about that. We're not just going to jump into that. And Jesus says, if if that's the way you deal with regular life, with your money, how much more should you count the cost about a decision like this, where you are putting your life in my hands? So when Jesus says, here are the conditions, he's saying, all right, here's the cost. Hate your family, bear your cross, renounce all that you have. And I am willing to give you eternal life. Here it is. Now sit down, think it out. Are you willing to pay? Now, I want us to think about the fine print because I want us to be sure that we are giving Jesus what we promised him. As disciples of Jesus, it may be that we came to Jesus without a full grasp of everything that Jesus was expecting of us. Maybe that's we were very young, or maybe we had not had as much teaching before we made that commitment. And so it just, it wasn't apparent to us everything that would be involved. These are still the conditions. And when they come due, when it does come an opportunity where we have to choose between Jesus and our family, or Jesus and our comfort, or Jesus and our money, we need to know that we've already made that commitment. And we need to pay what we have promised. I want us to think about the fine print because there are times where we are talking to others who are considering becoming disciples of Jesus. And we have those opportunities. And very often it seems to me that we, we kind of do the high-pressure sales pitch. And what we do when we do that is, is we, we give them all the blessings and benefits 
and then we pressure someone into making a decision, you should be baptized. Be baptized now. And we don't allow them the opportunity to consider everything that's involved. Jesus says they need to sit down and count the cost. It's not a decision that they should just rush into. They need to know what they're promising. And so in the same way, as we present the gospel to people, as we have the opportunity, we shouldn't be surprised when sometimes people need a little time to think through and make sure they're ready. Instead, I think we need to emphasize that Jesus tells us exactly what costs are involved. And I want us to think about the fine print because I want us to encourage one another to a life that is fully committed to serving Jesus. There is a commitment made here. And at times like the one that we're living in, we have our struggles and our worries, and sometimes we feel like maybe Jesus is expecting too much or like we're no longer as interested as we once were. And it seems like we need to know that we encourage one another to say this is more important than family or comfort or money. This is a bigger deal and this is worth it. I love the fact that Jesus is fully upfront with us. There is no trickery here. We know exactly what he wants and we know exactly what it will cost us. But my question is, if we receive eternal life and all of those costs come due, won't it be worth it? Will we ever regret that decision? Say, you know what? I really wish it hadn't happened this way. It seems to me that that's a choice we're all going to have to make. So I want you to think about your life and I want you to think about if especially there are times where you begin to see those conflicts and you begin to see those choices and whether the commitment you've made is going to help you make the right decisions about those things. We're going to offer the invitation at this time for those who are here at the building or if there's someone at home watching and there's any way that we can help you to be right with God, we hope you'll reach out to us. For those who are here, we're going to stand and sing a song to encourage you. So if there's a need that you have, please come to the front now as we stand and sing.